0: Well, Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters. Merry Christmas. It is good to, to gather with you again to worship our, our King, who is given the name above all other names. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. Especially if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to especially thank you and welcome you uh, to our gathering and invite you to, to hang around afterwards so that we have a chance to, to get to know you. We continue our worship this morning and now with hearing from God's Word preached. So would you please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. If the Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, just go a few books past the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you'll find Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 9. We pause our sermon series in the book of Matthew, to have a Christmas meditation on the birth of Jesus Christ. And we'll be slowing down today to consider one verse, Isaiah 9-6, of the name of the coming child who will be king. Isaiah 9-6, the name of Christ. But before we read, please pray with me once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word. Let's, Let's pray. Our Father, we do confess that Jesus has the name that is above every name. Lord, that he reigns with you in glory. But Lord, that he left glory. He left his throne above to be born in a manger. Lord, to be persecuted and hated by those he had made. And Lord, in him we have seen your glory full of grace and truth. Lord, I pray this morning as we come to your word and read from the prophet Isaiah that we would see his glory once more. Lord, that we would see the king as he is and Lord, bow before him in worship. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. We humans, it seems, are hardwired for hope. Hardwired for hope. I hope we have a white Christmas. I hope everyone can make it together for Christmas. Or turning more serious, I I hope we can find a way to stop fighting. Or as we think of so many of our members, I hope that doctors can figure out a treatment. I hope the pain goes away. Ultimately, I I hope what we believe turns out to be true. Can you relate to any of those hopes? One author writes that the language of hope is on our lips so frequently because we live in a world where hope seems to be constantly broken. It seems to be temporary, often lost in our work, In our families, in our church, in our world, we all deal with broken hopes. So it makes you wonder, is there anywhere we can go where we can find a secure hope that never fails? Where the only news is of good tidings for you and your kin? Well, Christians are in the habit of remembering the incarnation of the Son of God because it is a sure ground for our hope when all other hopes fail. Our passage this morning in Isaiah 9, verse 6, is a prophecy and promise of the Christmas to come, the birth of Jesus. In this verse, Isaiah has the privilege of naming someone he will never meet long before he is known as Jesus. And the name he gives this child reveals his identity, his character. As a coming king. And the birth of this righteous king brings good tidings to all. This morning we're going to read the verse in context. So we'll start in verse 2. Go all the way through verse 7. But our focus will be on verse 6. So read with me of the coming king. Isaiah 9 starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Well, we're going to study, uh, focus our study this morning on that sixth verse. The main point of, of this verse. Hope In the gift of the Son, the King who will come to rule. Hope in the gift of the Son, the King who will come to rule. I hope you felt as we read the the sense of hope, of anticipation in the verses that we read, of people in darkness seeing a great light, of, of joy, of a burden removed, it says, of warfare ended. And the height of it? The cause of it is in verse 6. The light and joy will come through the birth of a child. This son, it says, will rule the government on his shoulders. And his name reflects his glorious character. Hope in the gift of the son, the king who will come to rule. This morning we're going to really pull apart this one verse and squeeze everything we can out of it. So we'll have seven points, seven points this morning. The king is born of man. The king is given by God. The king takes the burden of rule. The king rules with wisdom. The king rules with all power. The king rules with compassion. And the king rules with peace. I won't repeat those. It'll take half of our time. But we can leave those on the screen for a bit if you want to get them down. But don't worry, as we go, I will repeat them. Before we get started, though, we, we need to get oriented in the book of Isaiah. We're, we're picking up nine chapters in. This is the continuation of something he's been saying for a while now. The, the hope of chapter 9 comes in the context of distress in the first eight chapters. Well, First, Isaiah is prophet to The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of the throne of of David. Right from the start of his prophecy, in the first chapter, Isaiah is very blunt about his people's sin. Isaiah 1.4 Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel They are utterly estranged. He speaks of his people. Isaiah says to his nation that they are laden with iniquity, that they have forsaken their God. And for that, Isaiah says, judgment is coming. Isaiah 3, 13 and 14, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. So for their sin, Isaiah says God will judge his people. Eventually that will come in their exile from the land. But but frankly, Isaiah is not speaking merely of the condition of the nation of Israel. Yes, Isaiah speaks in particular to his own nation, but they are not unique in their condition. No, here at the the beginning of his book, Isaiah is describing the condition of, of all people everywhere. All people are, as descendants of of Adam, born laden with iniquity. Ourselves children of evildoers. We are all utterly estranged from God by birth. So here in Isaiah 9, when he promises hope, he speaks to all people in their condition of sin. He speaks hope to us, too, this morning. So let's consider that hope, the height of it in Chapter 9, verse 6, starting with our first point. The king is born of man. Number one, the king is born of man. How is it that those in darkness see a great light? Why do the people, he says, rejoice before God? For to us a child is born. The hope is rooted in the birth of a child. Isaiah has already promised in his prophecy the the birth, the miraculous birth of a child. Back in chapter 7 verse 14, Of a virgin who shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Despite the fact that his people have forsaken him, God promises to be with them. So he gives this son. Even in the midst of judgment, God will not forsake them. As a sign, there is a son called God with us. So our verse continues to speak of that that coming child. The promise here is that he will be born of man. For us, a child is born in the natural way of, of children. Now that's not too surprising. In fact, it's exactly what we would normally expect. Except this one to come is also called here mighty god long before his birth isaiah is predicting the incarnation of the son of god what we celebrate at christmas is the fact that late in time god took on human nature a child is born jesus really was a child born in the way of of all mankind Jesus took on the same human nature that, that you and, and I have. He didn't arrive on the scene like an angel appearing out of thin air. No, he was knit together in his mother's womb for the typical time. He lived as an infant, feeding on his mother's milk. He would cry and get tired. He would eat. He would get scars. He grew and, and learned. He experienced all the non-sinful limitations of human nature. And in fact, we could say that he was even more human than you and I. He was human nature as it is meant to be without sin. In unbroken fellowship with his creator. And Jesus is still fully human. It's not as if he he took on human nature for a a 30-year mission and when it was accomplished... He shed it. No, the person of Jesus still has a human nature. Glorified in heaven, but human. And one day we will see him as a man. But he is not just human. Isaiah goes on to say, to us a son is given. Our second point, the king is given by God. Number two, the king is given by God. So not only is this child born as a man, but it says he is a son given. Now, you might think that's just a restatement of the first line, but there is is more here. It has a, a double meaning. He is not just the son of a virgin. He is also the capital S son of God. Who is it ultimately that gives this son? Who is making this promise? Is it his mother? No, it is God himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This gift of a Son is given by God and is God Himself. God has promised in the Incarnation to Himself be the shepherd of His sheep. In the mystery of the Trinity, of one God in three persons, the Father gives the Son as man on a mission to shepherd his people, to save them from their sin. So, Jesus Christ is not only truly man, but he is truly God. When he took on human nature, he didn't surrender any of his divinity. You know, our, our children are normally uh, some genetic mix of mom and dad. And, and from when, what, what we know about genetics, right, the dominant genes prevail. Well, is that the case with Jesus? A mix of human and, in this case, divine DNA and the divine, perhaps, is, is dominant. Well, no. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is truly and fully human and truly and ful- fully divine. If it were not the case, if he was any less of either, well, he would cease to be Either. When the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was given as man, He did not leave behind His divine nature. So that that baby lying in a manger is the same one who at that very moment upheld the universe by the word of His power. He is born, but also before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How that is, is a mystery, but true. Because Jesus the Christ is both man and God, he is uniquely qualified to save us. As man, he is able to represent us, to die the death that that we are subjected to. But because he is God, he is a sinless sacrifice, able to bear the infinite punishment our sins deserve, qualified to be our advocate at the Father's right hand. The ancient church defined our belief in the incarnate Christ in in what they call the Chalcedonian definition, written in 451. To read it is is to read with worship. It, It reads in part, Jesus is of the same essence as the Father according to His deity. And the same one is of the same essence with us according to His humanity. Like us in all things except sin. He was begotten before the ages from the Father, according to his deity. But in the last days for us and for our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, according to his humanity. Fully God and fully man. Stafford Baptist, the truths packed into just these two phrases of Isaiah 9, 6 contain the the greatest mystery and the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. That in light of what Isaiah has said, in in light of our sin and the judgment our sins deserve, our hopes are not enrooted in something that we can do. The solution that Isaiah presents is not something for us to do. No, it belongs to a totally different class, a, a set that contains only one. The only one who is truly man and truly God, Jesus Christ. I don't know, brothers, sisters, how you feel that you are in need of hope this season. What is causing you grief, pain, despair? The reminder of Isaiah 9-6 is that hope comes not in outward displays of splendor, but in the unobtrusive birth of a baby into a manger, unnoticed by the world. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But despite the plain nature of this birth, this one was worshipped by the angels and born as king. Let's keep going in Isaiah 9, 6. In our third point, the king takes the burden of rule. Number three, the king takes the burden of rule. After promising his human birth and divine origin, Isaiah says that the government shall be upon his shoulder. That word government means rule or dominion. The the promise is that the coming one will receive a kingdom. You might might remember in in verse 4 of of Isaiah 9, part of the hope of this son is that he will break the yoke, it says, of those who are oppressing the coming one's rule will end the tyranny of oppressive and burdensome powers. But as we take a look at the life of Jesus, his his kingdom is, is not what you might expect. It's exactly as he says to the Pharisees in, in Luke seventeen twenty the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. He has no palace or robes. The only crown he receives was made of thorns intended to tear the skin of his brow. Instead of ascending to a throne, he was raised on a cross. And even if it looked like defeat, that his kingdom had been crushed, it was in fact the victory planned by God. In his death, his kingdom dealt the fatal blow to the dominion of his greatest enemies, sin and Satan. So this king died as our substitute to to satisfy God's good wrath against the evil of our iniquity because we had forsaken God. Christ did not come and simply die as a demonstration of love only or as an example of how we should die to, to love others. Though that is true, on the cross He was forsaken in our place so that we could receive forgiveness and eternal life simply by repentance of our sin and trust in His death as our substitute. We still await the the consummation of that kingdom when Jesus comes again to reign forever. Our hope is still future The despair and and grief that we feel will only finally and fully be healed then. But it is an invitation for all. Everyone who hears me this morning is invited into this kingdom. Into the hope of its king. You are invited to to lay down the rebellion of sin against God and, and come to the king for clemency. He will forgive you, not because of what you have done, but because of what he did on your behalf. And he forgives you just as you are, but with that forgiveness makes you a new you. And when we come to this king, we enjoy him as the wonderful king that he is. So Isaiah says that the government will be on his shoulders. Well, what kind of king is this Jesus Who is it that invites you to himself in his kingdom? Well, Isaiah continues in this verse to tell us the name of this king. Even though Isaiah didn't yet know the name of Jesus, he knew him by another name. Notice, saints, in verse 6. His name singular, one name, shall be called. These four titles are the one name of this coming king, Jesus. Jesus. And each of them conveys something of his, his character or, or purpose of the king they refer to. So let's look at our fourth point. The king rules with wisdom. Number four, the king rules with wisdom. The first title of this king's name, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I think most of us associate counselors with maybe a therapist or the person at school who gave us advice about what class to take. A guidance counselor. Well, no, counselor here has the meaning of one who gives decrees, who makes decisions. Think more like Psalm 3311. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his hearts to all generations. And, and wonderful, of wonderful counselor, has the sense of miraculous This word always describes the kinds of amazing things that God does. So this king will rule as a wonderful counselor. He will rule with wisdom. As king, as sovereign ruler, what he decrees will be amazing. It will be perfect according to his wise counsel. He knows even better than what we know. What is for our good? In hindsight, under this king's rule, we will all say that his counsel was truly wonderful. So Christian, are you confused by how Jesus is directing your life? The things outside of your control are not going exactly how you would have planned. The invitation this morning is to say with Isaiah... He is a wonderful counselor. Even when we don't know the mind of the Lord, even when we cannot be his counselor, we can trust his heart. <clears throat> if you're joining us this morning and you don't consider yourself submitted to Jesus as king, hear what Isaiah says. His rule, the rule of his kingdom, is not meant to oppress or deprive the subjects of his kingdom. No, he is a wonderful counselor. It leads to human flourishing. He is a wonderful counselor. Christians can give testimony that his plans, his decrees, are often hard, but always good. And his counsel will stand forever. As his plans lead to our flourishing now and forever, it is intended to display this king's wisdom. Ephesians 3.10 says that His wisdom is displayed in the gathering of His people, the the church. In the way that we live as a united and holy body, according to His wisdom, we shall offer to the world his, His perfection, the perfection of His counsel, the counsel of our King. His name shall be called among His people, Wonderful Counselor. The king rules with wisdom. But you might wonder, what good is wisdom if you have no power to accomplish it? You know, even the best of our world rulers, they they can try by their power to do what they think is best for their subjects. But more often than not, they fail. Well, the next title of the name of this king, our fifth point, the king rules with all power. Number five, The king rules with all power. Isaiah says next that his name shall be called Mighty God. Mighty is a term of power, of strength. The ability to accomplish what he has counseled. This king works all things according to the counsel of his will. So not only are his sovereign plans wise... But he has power to see that they are fulfilled perfectly. Of course, this highlights the truth that we thought about in our second point that this king is God himself. The kind of power he's talking about belongs only to God. He is not just called mighty here, but mighty El, mighty God. And this power is essential if our hope is going to be real. You know, Rebecca and I recently watched the holiday classic Jingle All the Way. The, the whole premise of the movie is built on the promise that Howard, the father, makes to his son Jamie to get him the, the Turbo Man action figure for Christmas. Well, Jamie is strung along by, by hope. But it's a flimsy hope. Partly because of his father Howard's neglect. He has a a very hard and and quite comical time trying to get the toy for his son. Obviously, the the story has a happy ending, but, but it was, for all of it, in peril. Friends, that's never the case with God, because he is the mighty God. There are no rivals to his power. He is not limited by the supply of the toy stores, so to speak. He has all resources within himself. Church, there is a certain hope in this king because this king rules with all power. Even what we perceive to be threats and hindrances to his purpose in our lives or in the world around us are just dust on the scales to him. In other words, imperceptible. They don't even figure. Our king rules with all power. Power. But if the thought of an all powerful deity is frightening to you, we must continue to our sixth point. Not only is he called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, but our sixth point the king rules with compassion. The king rules with compassion. Isaiah goes on telling us the name of this child to call him Everlasting Father. Or to put it another way, forever, Father. As he is, he will always be forever. One of the perfections of this coming king is that he never changes. He has no need to improve and has no way to worsen. But what about Father? It's odd in the same verse to call one child and son and father. And especially with our Trinitarian language, it might be confusing to call the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, a father. So we have to be clear here that Isaiah is not saying that this king is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. No, he is describing his character. He is saying that as king, he will rule like a father. He will not be a potentate. No, he is saying that the, this one will be like father, com- A ruling with love and compassion. This title describes his relationship with his subjects. As a father with his children. As a benevolent protector. The king rules with compassion. In his plans, with power, he has sympathy. His heart toward his subject is gentle and lowly. A bruised reed he does not break. A a smoldering flax he does not put out when his subjects ask for bread he does not give a stone let me remind you saints that the emotion most often attributed to jesus our king is compassion he pities and relieves the miseries of his subjects that's compassion his his heart throbs with pity at those in suffering and distress the sight of it hurts this king because he doesn't just rule over his subjects. He loves those in his kingdom. And his compassion for the misery of his subjects is nowhere clearer than what he says in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest act of compassion is to lay down life. It is compassionate for our king to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to to reach and teach the lost. But the greatest act of his compassion was dying for them. To die in their place so that they would no longer suffer under the misery of the slavery of sin and condemnation from God. The greatest act of our compassionate king's life was to relieve eternal suffering by his death for our sins. This king rules with compassion as eternal father. Saints are our, our seventh point, the last phrase of Isaiah nine six, the king rules with peace. Number seven, the king rules with peace. Finally, Isaiah nine six says that he shall be called Prince of Peace. His powerful plans with sympathy accomplish peace. Again, this highlights his authority, his rule, his his kingdom as prince. And his rule as prince will be marked by, it says, peace, by shalom, by wholeness. The peace of his reign is first and foremost a peace with God. Isaiah has charged Judah and all people with despising the Holy One. Not a relationship of peace. But now by his death they are at peace with God. No longer does God stand over his people as a judge. But he welcomes them as adopted children. Paul speaks of Jesus' incarnation in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Saying how this prince brought peace. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in the beloved Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. God has made peace through the beloved Son, in whom all the fullness of God dwelt by the blood of of his cross. God's wrath against sin was extinguished in Jesus Christ. That our sins deserved death. Blood had to be paid. But now in Christ there is no (coughs) condemnation left. And more than that, we now have a reconciled relationship with God. Jesus, by His death, cleared the way for us to be restored to God. No longer utterly estranged, as Isaiah has described. But, not only do we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. In our sin, we had been marked by malice and and envy. But in, in Christ, we can live at peace with one another. We are now peacemakers because we are sons of God. And ultimately, our hope is in perfect peace. Though our peace with God is now perfect and our peace with one another is progressing, we still live in a world at war with God. But one day that warfare will be ended. This king will return to bring in a reign of perfect peace forever, where every enemy of his rule will be destroyed, including death. It's at that time that he will end all warfare. Swords beaten into plowshares, Isaiah 2.4 says. This peace will be so universal that that Isaiah 11.6 says, The lion will lay down with the lamb. Stafford Baptist, this is the only foundation for our hope. The joys of Christmas season have come and, and will go, but grief and pain will remain. Even for those of us who have been forgiven of sin's penalties, sin will still be present with us. Yes, Lord willing, Christmas will come again next year. But that is not our hope. Our hope is in something far greater. A hope that began with God's love and purpose before the foundation of the world. That was made known in promise and was born the son of Mary, and will come again at the end of the ages. Brothers and sisters, we close our service today with a meal of hope, the Lord's Supper. It is not only a time for us to remember Christ's body broken and blood poured out for us, but to hope for his return. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. Friends, in the joys of this season or griefs of joys lost, hope in the gift of the Son, the King who will come again to rule. Let's pray. Father, that is our hope this morning. Lord, as you promised the King to come, Lord, we hope in the promise of His coming again. Lord, the king who reigns, Lord, with wisdom, Lord, his counsel is perfect, Lord, the king who reigns with all power, that he accomplishes all that he has purposed, Lord, the king who rules with compassion in sympathy and love for his subjects, and the king who brings peace, Lord, peace with you and our hope this morning, perfect peace forever in his kingdom to come. So Lord, we pray, come quickly. Fuel our hopes this morning with the hope of his coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.